It's Monday, February 18th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 196 of the 5049 podcast. Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is the ultra-talented and utterly unique cellist, Mariel Roberts. Let's have a listen. Yeah. That's a piece by George Lewis that she's playing back there. Mariel is fabulous. And uh, you're in for a good one today. Today on the show, Mariel Roberts. Hey, we're coming up on um, episode 200 of this podcast. That's kind of a big deal, right? 200 episodes of talk. I don't know. Uh, like, am I, am I supposed to do something special? Should I have like a really big guest on? Is there such thing as a really big guest in this world of music? You know what I'm saying? I feel like other podcasts, other shows, they would just, you know, know exactly what to do. They would do something really special. And uh, like, what am I supposed to do? I don't think we're going to do anything special for episode 200. That is to say, it's not, don't, don't expect like, um, you know, some, some mega star to come on. I think we're going to treat it like every other episode. Episode 200 will be as special as any and every episode we've ever done. I'm just putting that out there now. A couple of people have asked me, like, uh, you know, you're going to get someone big? I'm not going to do that. Star fuckerdom has long been a problem in, in the world of creative music as far as I'm concerned. I don't think I need to perpetuate that. Everyone I talk to on this fucking podcast is amazing. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, some emails have been coming in uh, asking about that. And uh, There you go. Do you enjoy this podcast? Do you listen to it regularly? If so, please consider becoming a monthly donor. How do you do that? You go to patreon.com slash 5049 podcast and you become a donor at any level you want. Any level you feel comfortable with. This is a listener supported show and uh, believe me, it helps. As a uh, thank you, as a treat, to those of you that do pledge to the Patreon, you will have immediate access to the entire archive of this show. The most recent 100 episodes always available for free in iTunes. The 100 or so episodes that uh, preceded those exist only in the archive. So do that. All right, today on the show, Mariel Roberts. Uh, you remember a couple of weeks ago when Eric Wubbles, it's still hard for me to say that, when Eric Wubbles was on the show, um, to, in in a, in a weird way that I'm sure Mariel's not even aware of, in a weird way, today's show is uh, a companion piece to that. How so? Well, number one, um, Mariel and Eric have worked a lot together. 
In fact, the very uh, first piece that you hear on that episode with Eric, that is a piece that Eric wrote for Mariel, uh, for her most recent record, Cartography. How else is it a companion piece? This is the second podcast I ever did, Eric being the first, where my, my smaller chihuahua, I have two chihuahuas, Javier and Pearl. Pearl is the smaller chihuahua, and she sat on Mariel's lap for the entire episode. For me, it's very annoying. I wish that she wouldn't do that, uh, but she's a very bossy, very controlling chihuahua, and she demands a lot of attention. I think Mariel was okay with it. But who is Mariel Roberts? If you've been checking out contemporary music in New York for the last, uh, let's say, 10 years, you might not need an introduction. In addition to being an incredibly cool and laid-back and pleasant person to talk to, as you're going to hear today, Mariel's been a big part of the scene. For uh, six or seven years, she was the cellist in the Mivos Quartet. She's worked with Ice. She's worked with uh, Talea. She's worked with all you know, pretty much all of the uh, the self started ensembles that make up the landscape of of young contemporary music in New York. And she's also put out a couple of really spectacular solo recordings. As I mentioned last year, she put out a record uh, called Cartography. It's her second solo record. Uh, pieces commissioned by by contemporary composers and. When I think about, uh, you know, what's exciting about, about contemporary music now, I think of Mariel. She plays her ass off. She's commissioning pieces by people, as I mentioned at the start of the show, like George Lewis. This is, you know, heavy stuff. This is the kind of music I enjoy listening to, you know. People say, hey, what do you dig listening to? This is, you know, this is the stuff that when I'm listening, you know, I, I say, okay, well, I'm, you know what I'm doing tonight? I'm going to going to settle in in my little den and really do some listening. This is the kind of stuff I'm looking for. Mariel's fantastic. Today's show is a good one. I enjoyed this conversation very much. If you want to find out more about Mariel, go to marielroberts.com. She's spectacular and she's going to be around for a long time. And her newest record is awesome. It's called Cartography. Check it out. Check it out on Bandcamp. And that's it. Uh, let's get right into it. I hope you guys are doing well. Here's my conversation with Mariel Roberts. Really? So where do you, where do you, where do you do your... so shocked. I didn't think they had studio apartments in Leopardstown. Um, there's a few. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, not that many. There's like two buildings that have a bunch of studios that a shit ton of musicians in. It's a big building, right? Yeah. If you take the B or the D to 7th Avenue? No, I'm on Prospect Park. Okay. So it's like right, if you go to the Prospect Park station and turn right, it's those buildings right on the corner. I know the building. Yeah. A friend of mine who's a cellist, I think used to live in one of those buildings. Yeah, probably. There's yeah. tons of musicians there. They call them the jazz dorms, actually. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of jazz dorms all throughout Brooklyn. Yeah, there are. So is it like a lot of new school kids? Um, it's just a bunch of musicians. Like it's kind of a range of ages. It's mostly like people around my age or younger. Yeah. Kind of is that cool or is that annoying? 
It's cool because I have some friends in the building, which is nice. Um, and I can practice whenever I want, as loudly as I want, and nobody complains. But does that mean, like, in return, you have to listen to people practicing loudly? I don't hear that much. Like, I sometimes hear sessions from different parts of the um, building, but it's not bad. And it's like, Leo Genovese lives down for me. It's like, I don't mind listening to him. Oh, really? Play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he can play, right? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Great. It's funny. I, there's, like, a couple kids. I mean, there's some musicians in these buildings. Uh, Ooh, like, good coffee. Good coffee. Uh, yeah. Like professional musicians, and like none of you know, no one. Like I, I don't practice past five or six p.m. Just out of mm-hmm. you know consideration. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of kids throughout the building. Like you can hear them in the hallways, like yeah. playing piano. Mm-hmm. What did I say? Yeah, she's gonna. <laughs> I interviewed Eric Wubbles a couple weeks ago, uh-huh. and she was obsessed with him. <laughs> yeah. And she she busted the door open and came and sat on his lap. <laughs> um, I, I enjoy hearing kids practice. Interesting. Like someone who's just like running scales and stuff, like it's yeah. relaxing for me. But hearing like adults, uh, like practice specific things, kind of irritates me. I don't like listening to people practice who think that they're really good and they're like blasting out their licks one after the other. <laughs> like my least favorite thing. I like people like just genuinely practicing, but licks. But I mean, not like so much. practicing. I mean, I imagine you practice for several hours a day. Mm-hmm. And what does that practice routine look like? Um, I usually start with something that is probably really annoying to other people. I just start with like long tones for a really long time. It's relaxing. Yeah, it's good. It makes me feel really connected to my instrument. Um, and then scales and stuff. All right. The scales. And yeah. then whatever stuff you're working on. Yeah. Like, I feel like if you're practicing, obviously if you have like a specific thing you need to work on or mm-hmm. like a specific part of your routine, that's that's what it is. But like you should kind of sound like shit when you're practicing. I agree. You yeah. should be working on the things that like you're not good at. Yeah. If I sounded good, I wouldn't need to practice it. <laughs> 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 so therefore it's kind of annoying to hear people practice true but, but not good oh i guess that's kind of why i like hearing other people practice especially like um when i'm also struggling through stuff uh-huh. it makes me feel more connected like oh, i like yeah it really is yeah yeah like i heard um like i've heard like other horn players that i really admire practicing mm-hmm. and i'm like oh you sound like shit yeah that's really yeah. comforting yeah Exactly. In the same way that I, I frequently sound like shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've been in that apartment the whole time? Um, no, I've been there for like six months or something. But I was oh. two blocks away. Right, right. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned that. Yeah. Did you know going into it you're going to be living in a jazz dorm? Yeah. I did. <laughs> but it was a good studio apartment. I'm across the street from the park, which is great. I run there like most days. Um, it's just super chill and nice. Yeah. 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 Do you have experience as a jazz person? No, <laughs> as a jazz person. <laughs> no, I'm not a jazz person per se. Right. I do improvise, um, and I my dad was a jazz musician, so I feel very connected. Yeah, but only part time. Um, what did he play? He played piano. What's his name? His name is David Roberts. But in, he, in New York? No, no, no. In Denver, where I'm from. You're from Denver? Yeah. Did you know Ron Miles growing up? I li- um, not personally, but I lived next door to his sister. Really? <laughs> yeah. Denver yeah. is like smaller than I thought. Yeah, it's very small. It is, right? Yeah, anybody out of there, I probably know. Do you know Ben Goldberg? No, I don't. Okay. He and Ron grew up together. And okay. Ben's amazing clarinetist. Um, but Ron is like the stuff of legend around there. Yeah. Yeah, he's the man, the jazz man. He's the man. Yeah. Have you heard him play? He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Nate knows him. Nate Woolley, yeah. Nate yeah. studied with him. And yeah. Like, I think it's pretty unanimous that uh, Ron is considered to be like sort of a Buddha. Yeah. Of Colorado. Yeah, definitely. Did um so he played in Denver like doing sessions and stuff? Um mostly doing gig type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um cuz he uh 
ended up like having to get a day job and stuff because we were just super poor and my parents had three right. kids. So uh, he had a day job doing computer stuff, but he always did piano stuff at night. And the gigs were like functions and stuff like that, playing yeah. standards? Yeah. yeah. Did you, so you heard a lot of that stuff growing up? Oh, yeah. You, did you like it? Oh, I loved it, yeah. And he would like take me to gigs and, you know, pop me under the piano. He's, he's really? like, stay there. <laughs> That's amazing. That. Yeah, it is amazing. Did you, um, and you picked a cello or? Yeah, I did. Well, my older sister played violin. She started on violin. Um, and I guess I wanted to play like a bigger instrument. So I was just like, <laughs> as a one-upsmanship, I, I picked cello. Uh-huh. And did, uh, does or did your mom play an instrument? No. Uh-huh. So she was, just, it must have driven her crazy. No, she loves music. She okay. really loves music. She doesn't love the music that I do now, but she does love music in general. She like has a distaste for a lot of contemporary music. She does. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty. What's uh, what's like a frequent comment when she hears the? <laughs> so if she, um, she lives still in Colorado, so she doesn't see me play that much. But her things, she'll come to a concert. I'm like, mom, what did you think? How did it sound? She goes, your hair looked very nice. <laughs> so good. Your hair looked good. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> oh, really? But she yeah. she must appreciate that. Yeah, no, she's very craft supportive. And the, yeah, like she, you know, it's clear like you're not fucking around. Yeah, yeah, she's very proud of me in general. I, I don't know if um, I'm always confused if like how, like the average person if they hear the difference. Like, I went to this crazy piece like several. I remember several years ago, uh, cello piece actually. Uh, Zorn mm -hmm. wrote this piece for three cellos. Uh, oh, yeah, 777. Yeah, 777. And at the premiere at the Guggenheim, it was Fred Cherry, mm -hmm. um, Eric Friedlander, and Mike Nicholas. So, like, top shelf composition, top shelf cellists, yeah. like, intense blast of music. And I, these dudes sitting next to me were like, dude, that was just fucking noise. And I was, like, dumbfounded that they couldn't hear, like, just the hyper detail of it, or at least that the distinction between, like, actual noise and. You know, I think that. I'm realizing that a little bit of education or a little bit of expectation in music is way worse in terms of like trying to get challenging music played than no information. What do you mean? You know, people that know a little bit about music, they like know who Bach is, they know who Mozart is, they have then this expectation of what music is supposed to sound like. Whereas if you play for like kids or people who have no connection to sure. music, they can be super into contemporary or like experimental stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like kind of the vibe is like finding the people on the outskirts because the people in the middle they have this expectation that makes them really um disappointed because they want to be able to recognize that one thing that they're able to recognize like a chord change or like a, a mm -hmm. pattern that comes back or a timbre that makes them feel like oh this is what i recognize or they'll describe music. that as dissonance but exactly. that's as far that i think is liberal arts education which yeah. is like i remember one day i have this friend who both of his parents um are professors at columbia he grew up at columbia he went to columbia and he's like you know super educated and we were walking around the met and he was like yeah i could name probably you know four out of five of these artists and that's as good as i can do it's a memory yeah. game yeah uh and that's yeah no i think you're right i think you're right yeah i think it's the the expectation um, stops people from being able to listen with like fully open ears, you know, uh -huh. like you want it to fit into a category and you think you, you have some categories. Um, you just don't have enough categories or you have too many categories. People tend, I think more and more to describe things like in really like hyperbolic terms, like things are amazing or yeah. things are like bullshit. Right. And <laughs> it doesn't really leave a lot of room for actual conversation around the thing. Right. I'm I'm very hesitant to call things amazing unless they're at least like 50 years old. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's very valid. <laughs> like I watched this movie Roma the other night that everyone was talking about. It's, like, yeah. it's amazing. It's I did amazing. hear it was amazing. I, I mean, it was, you know, it was cool. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't amazed. Like I didn't like yeah. almost lose my sanity over yeah. it. Did you, um, so, so the stuff that your dad was listening to and playing was predominantly like, like classic jazz shit or did it go, go out anywhere? Um, it was pretty classic. He was, um, yeah, more into classic stuff. He listened to like classical music and stuff too. Sure. But yeah, he was more into like traditional jazz stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he didn't get into like the AACM or... No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it wasn't that deep. <laughs> I mean, you know, the older I get, the more I listen to Ben Webster, Lester Young, yeah. Don Bias, you know, mm-hmm. that's the stuff I actually kind of gravitate more. Yeah. Um, so they got you a cello teacher. Yep. And did you like start immediately on like that traditional classical trajectory of like hating life and (laughs) (laughs) questioning the meaning of music (laughs) yeah just you know like killing the joy in all music (laughs) um well i felt like i always kind of had like a little bit of freedom because um i started on a classical instrument but i felt really close to my dad and like that was outside of the tradition he was also interested in a lot of different types of music like he was a motown dj back when he was young yeah he was really into a lot of different things and i felt like that gave me freedom to be Uh to not like box myself into one thing and my friends were all into different weird things um i went to like an art school and stuff too so i um, was working with or working hanging out with people that were like dancers or writers or whatever that's amazing um so while i was like still doing a classical instrument and i was doing the classical study because that's what you have to do when you're learning an instrument like that yeah. um i never felt like super boxed into that way so i never was like hating life <laughs> doing yeah yeah, yeah. About orchestra and stuff i feel like yeah. a, i know a lot of cellists like that it's like it's not a very constricting instrument it's a very human instrument. It is a very human instrument. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the cello. Maybe there is um like there's a lot of pressure on someone like a violinist to fit this rigid mold in a way mm-hmm. because the mm-hmm. competition is so tough and I don't know, maybe cello gives you a little wiggle room because <laughs> there's less expectation of what you should I mean, sound was like. was your dad ever telling you like, Hey, here's improvisation, you play over these chords? Or was there was that Yeah. And we in? yeah, we would play a little bit together. Like really? that was the way yeah. He because um, I always wanted to play with him, but he couldn't um after I was like ten or something, he couldn't really hang with the classical kind of stuff I was playing. <laughs> <laughs> so like we would occasionally just improvise or I always had an interest in doing that. You know. I'm so envious of people who grew up with music in the household like that as like a communal activity. Yeah. Did and did your sister get involved too with the violin? Yeah. Yeah. We I played with my sister. We mostly played classical music stuff together or like singer songwriter or fiddle stuff. We did fiddle stuff too. That's like a super fun Yeah. Man. It's a good time. <laughs> I think yeah, I think more people on the classical tip, like if they had access also to like fiddling, like yeah. they, it might be <laughs> Just that gateway would be great to just loosen people up. You yeah. know, it's shocking the amount of people that can't get away from like a piece of paper. It's like there would be an incredible musician and then you try to get them to do something that's a little bit outside of what's notated or a little bit outside of a piece and they can't play anything. Yeah. It's like without the page there. It's like, well, I guess it could play a scale. I know how that goes. But I don't know. <sighs> right. They never were able to explore just being with their instrument apart from performing a very specific thing yeah do you like have a general recollection or feeling of being with your instrument as a young person yeah definitely yeah and i just um i've always just been really into the sound and the timbre and the physical aspect of playing my instrument so even when i was little i remember i would get bored of practicing my Haydn concert or whatever and i would just play you know i would just play around and make sound mm-hmm. um 
So, I, yeah, I just remember that really tactile feeling of being with my instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, and then, so I assume that concurrently you were also listening to non-classical, non-jazz music? Yeah. Music for young people, <laughs> if you will. Music of the youth. <laughs> music that young people will enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? Was it? Um, I kind of listened to a lot of different things. I was really into stuff around that time was like... Uh, TLC or like really? <laughs> yeah yeah um I think my, one of my first concerts was the Roots actually I went to see the Roots and Erica Badu that's this is really good music it was phenomenal yeah it was incredible it's still one of the best concerts yeah. I've seen um I was into that was were they kinda, backing up Erica Badu or was two no separate it was sets? two separate sets okay um I was kind of into like metal and stuff too it's like this Metallica and, sure. and stuff like that yeah, yeah yeah um yeah just kind of a huge range of things there's not too much that I didn't like you know that was a really like, pleasant way to grow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Did you go to summer camp? Did I go to summer camp? Um, not really. I did one music summer camp in high school that was like one of those hardcore, like oh, it was a drag. militant. You're gonna practice nine hours a day. Oh, thing. so it wasn't the summer camp of <laughs> no. like lazing around. It wasn't like whimsical summer making camp. out and having a really great time. <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not that kind. Of so, camp. so you knew by the end of high school that you were gonna take the serious continue the series path yeah so where did you go to music school um i did my undergrad at eastman and then i yeah did a master's at msm okay yeah those are like hallowed grounds of (laughs) yeah (laughs) serious musicianship real schools real schools (laughs) lots of competition yeah lots of strange um well what was it like for you like i'm like i feel like i'm just like assuming that your life was like (laughs) what was it like well i feel like i kind of um you know, there's this, like, whole tradition. I think it's mostly on the coast. I, we didn't have this in Denver, uh-huh. you know, of, like, kids. They do the pre-college, and they're really hardcore, and their parents are great violinists, and their teachers are the best teachers, and they start when they're three or whatever. And those music schools are full of those people. Yeah. Um, and I felt really intimidated kind of going into that atmosphere. I felt like I was probably the worst musician there. I wasn't sure, like, You were intimidated in. just by the, the musicianship? Yeah. Yeah. And the culture, you know, I was sure. I was outside of that culture. I mean, I, I was in youth orchestra, youth orchestra and stuff in Colorado, but it didn't feel like um, it wasn't like I did Juilliard pre-college from the time I was 11, you know, right? like that wasn't my world, really. Um, so I felt kind of like the worst person going in there, which was were, were you, you think that was just inside your head or were there like hard outside signifiers like confirming <laughs> that for you? Um. I think it was mostly in my head, yeah. but also um, I didn't have the kind of experience that a lot of those people had, and I wasn't like in that kind of intense training that those yeah. people had. So there, there's some truth to it, probably. Um, but in a way, that was great because then I felt like I had more ability to learn, and sure. I also didn't have to. I don't know. Like maybe if I wasn't going to be like the first chair of the orchestra every time, then it gave me the freedom and time to do other stuff that I was interested in. Yeah. Which was great. Because even from the very beginning, I was doing other stuff. I was playing in the contemporary ensemble. I was playing in the gamelan, the imbira ensemble and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, okay. So, quite quite a bit of openness from the... What was the contemporary ensemble? What was that repertoire like? Um, We kind of did like standard contemporary stuff like Grise or um, more like... I don't know, like contemporary for classical is like Stravinsky. <laughs> right. So like, like, is this like like late 20th century or like yeah. early 20th century? Yeah, like late 20th century. Okay. And this was undergrad? Yeah. I didn't know who the fuck Grisset was when I was <laughs> like 19. <laughs> <I> learned quickly. <laughs> was that music exciting right off the bat or were you just sort of like? 
Oh, I was so excited. That is like what instantly made me feel alive, you know. Had you had you an awareness of that kind of stuff prior to turning up at a A little bit. Yeah, I had um a good teacher, like a music history teacher in high school that had like turned me on to some just like even a little bit outside like Steve Reich, we listened to different trains Steve next door. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we listened to <laughs> <laughs> He was in the building right behind. That's funny. Yeah. Um and that kind of opened that world for me. Um, and I started being interested in playing newer stuff that was written now because I thought that process was really interesting. Uh-huh. Um, so then getting like opened up to this world, I thought it was amazing. It's like learning a different language each time you come to a piece. And I was like, yeah. I, actually, I'm really good at that. You know, I'm, that is something that I love and I'm good at. And um, it was kind of like this light going on, you know, getting yeah. to work on stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To sort of like engage with a piece a little bit differently every time based yeah. on exactly because I, I wasn't good at <laughs> um kind of doing things exactly the way my teacher wanted me to do them i guess maybe i have like a little bit of a problem with authority um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like what if i don't want to play bach that way what if i don't want to make a phrase that way yeah um and in contemporary music nobody was telling me that i had to do anything a certain way i did it how i heard it you know in my head i mean i think it's safe to say that more often than not uh you know, living composers, you know, assuming that there's a foundation of musical craft and ability and technique and fundamentals in place, would probably rather work with someone who has this openness and excitement Mm -hmm. to be there than someone who's like, you know, quote unquote, like the virtuoso, but is, has like very hard ideas and attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Um, I think it's still strange. I mean, I think this exists even now that the idea that if you're really focused on contemporary music or music that's outside the standard repertoire that it means that you're not good enough to do i think that i mean at least i kind of feel like that i know what you're saying i feel like it's eroding because if you look at someone like jay campbell for instance Mm -hmm. you know argue like totally one of the best cellists you know musicians around yeah and because he's talented and i feel like this is true of everyone like you and, and olivia and all these different people we know like because these people are talented and creative and open-minded like they're kind of drawn towards you know unexplored territory yeah yeah definitely like once you've feel like you understand this world then it gives you the ability to break into this other space yeah yeah also i don't know i I feel like for creative people like it's kind of fun to be around like the weirdos and like the people that sit in the back of the class (laughs) you know that's me So, so early on, uh, would, would you say that that contemporary ensemble in undergrad was, that was like an important, um, gateway? It was definitely important to have that opportunity for me to like be able to focus really seriously on that kind of repertoire. Yeah. For sure. And you called home and said, this is what I'm into. Um, did I call home? Maybe. <laughs> did you email home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I AOL instant messengered my mom. <laughs> Send her a text. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I definitely um, made it clear that that was becoming yeah. more important to me. Yeah, were, and were there people? I, I mean, I am so out of my element. You know, like I, didn't, I went to like a year of college. You know, but like, <laughs> do you do you feel like in that environment, um, advisors, professors, instructors were able to kind of see your interests and then say, "Hey, this is like a totally viable path." Was that? No, okay. <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. Uh, my teacher wasn't too um, too bad about it. I know that other 
teachers in the school would like really discourage their students from doing newer stuff. Um, yeah. They thought it wasn't valid musical expression, basically, that it wasn't music most of the time. Um, and they and thought, the attitude, just to be clear, it wasn't like, hey, you'll get more work if you focus on like classical repertoire. No, it was like, this is music. That's I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's fucking horrible. It's really bad. And I, I that culture is really dangerous. It's really toxic. It's incredibly toxic. Yeah. Um, not only because it. It's like you can't do the music that you're interested in, which then why the hell are you being a musician if you can't play the things that you're interested in? Um, but it's it's so pointless. It is ha- like perpetuates this system of playing music that only existed within these like, 150 years, which is just a dying thing. Yeah. Like music doesn't exist in a bubble like that. Yeah, that music is a wonderful and it's amazing and it's great to carry on that tradition but that can't be all that you're studying that's so pointless music education gets weird yeah you see that at um jazz schools yeah you know which you know mm-hmm. you think like oh jazz this is you know 20th century american yeah. music you know it's, yeah. it's a it's a it's it's an evolving life form well you put it in the context of like the new school or something yeah and you get one of these dinosaurs you know criticizing people exactly. it's yeah, that's the problem, I think. And then teachers, um, they teach what their idea of music is. like, And it's encouraged for teachers to you know, stick to their expertise. And then they get really uncomfortable to teach anything that's outside of their comfort zone. Because that, yeah. like, un- it, it sort of, like, I think maybe has a tendency to sort of undermine their expertise. Exactly. Yeah. Which I guess is understandable, but that doesn't seem like a good way to educate people. I mean... It's tricky. I, I don't know. Like, I have friends now who, you know, are going into academics. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're teaching at, at universities. Some mm-hmm. friends of mine who are in their, you know, 50s and 60s, te- you know, teaching at Mills and New England Conservatory. But then younger people in their late 30s and 40s teaching it kind of, I, I don't know how you navigate that. I mean, I, I feel like someone I know, like Zena Parkins, for instance. Mm-hmm. She's an incredibly open person. And, and I, I know from people that stu- have studied with her that they come with their ideas and she like supports encourages and helps mm-hmm. shape right is that is that weird i think that's the exception rather than the rule probably yeah. but i guess there's something to be said for wanting to teach the thing that you're best at i guess too so where do you look for where do you where do you look to for encouragement if you're in that environment um i guess your peers you know i think that's why a lot of the people that I work with now are people that I met in school. Like who? Um, well, at MSM especially, um, a lot of the people, like the people that I worked with in Mevo's Quartet um, were MSM people. Vicky Chow is an MSM person. Uh-huh. Um, the people from like Load Bang or Talk Ensemble, all of those people came out of that program at MSM. Yeah. Um, there's a good community there of people that just, we were making it work. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've been really interested and I... I'm now confident that it's, you know, a phenomenon for the last 20 years or so, but the number of ensembles in New York that are, you know, people in their 40s and younger um, that were started, you know, just for, you know, kind of like, you know, I'm talking about International Contemporary Ensemble, Talea, Wet Ink, Mivos, Jack, like on and on and on, like all these different groups. Um, like it's It's a lot. Yeah. It's definitely like a last quarter of the 20th century thing into the early 2000s. Do you think some of that is because people had to like find each other in that way in these environments? Definitely. Yeah. I think it's definitely because of that. We had to, in a way, create our own community of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens with every community. Um, 
Yeah, I don't, why else would that be? I guess because also in the type of music that we do, there's not like institutional support a lot of the time for things we do. Like we're not, sometimes we play at Carnegie Hall. We're not always playing at Carnegie Hall and we're not getting um, like government support most of the time. I mean, we apply for grants and stuff, but um, like we had to create our own concert opportunities, you know? So yeah. I think by forming ensembles, we're not only performers but we end up being presenters a lot of the time too yeah. and like organizers of events and like the people that make our own work yeah you know, i think that's probably that organizational is. aspect is i don't know where you learn that i mean the trial and error <laughs> a lot yeah. of trial, trial and error or talking to people that are five ten years older than you and seeing how they did it the, the mistakes they made the things that worked for them yeah um you just it's always a learning curve and a process i mean i have you know as much admiration as I do confusion and bewilderment uh, for people like, you know, Claire Chase and, yeah. you know, the Jack Quartet people that, you know, yeah. really work their ass off at, at that aspect of it yeah. um, quite successfully. Yeah, it blows my mind. I can't, I don't know how Claire Chase's brain works. She's just so it, I think good it works at very quickly. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like when you talk to her, yeah. like, she has a lot of energy. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, just, yeah, I've never know, been good at that stuff either. Yeah. Or just knowing how to do that, how to t even talk to people to get them to donate money to your organization. It's like get a totally it. different thing. Yeah. yeah. So what year did you finish at MSM? I finished in 2011. Okay. Who did you study with there? Who was your... Fred Sherry. Oh. Yeah. The man. <laughs> yeah, so, you, so you got the word study with Sherry. Yeah. I feel like in 100 years, people will... In 200 years, we'll talk about Sherry and they'll talk about the people that got to study with him. Definitely. Yeah. He's such a... Wonderful person, too. Not just a great musician, but just a great spirit. You know, he's just yeah. totally free. He's just full of music. He's full of the music that he loves. And he just transmits that into the world. It's yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. When you started uh, working with him, you were, I have to imagine, aware that that was a great honor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw Sherry play? Um, I believe it was an Elliot Carter concert. I can't remember what he was doing. It might have been a Carter duo or trio. It's great. He's just like a bear, yeah. <laughs> like a big bear, just hitting all the notes on the cello. Yeah, and I have to imagine that he was perhaps more encouraging than your previous um, <laughs> advisor instructors. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because Fred is also into the music that he's into, and he's not into the music that he's not into. Right. You know, like if I bring Schoenberg Concerto to him, if I bring Carter or Babbitt to him, he has one million great things that we can talk about. Yeah. If I bring Zanakis to him, he says. I guess that's what it's supposed to sound like. If you if you think that's what it sounds like, I'm sure that's right. You know, huh. It's like that sort of thing. Yeah. Which is not like to discourage someone from playing that kind of music, but he doesn't have anything to say about it, really. That's interesting. Yeah. Which I think is maybe a different kind of teaching that people are only now kind of getting into. Is like, how do you teach something that you have absolutely no idea, um, no relationship to? Like I was in, um, actually I was in Mexico City a couple months ago and I was coaching they had a bunch of chamber groups come play and a trombone choir came up to play something it's like i have to coach a trombone choir i don't what could i possibly say about it it's like a very new type of way of thinking right you know i mean what was and they were playing a through composed piece yeah <laughs> and and you what how did you approach that um i guess we just talked about general chamber music how you present yourself on stage 
Right. Um, how do you, what is your relationship to the score? Like, could you think about this gesture differently? Yeah. You know? Group sound, coalescing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's all the same stuff. It's just. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember this story years ago. This is like, you know, this is public school, but this friend of mine who's, you know, an improvising musician in mm -hmm. New York, he, oh man, he was subbing for, for someone the day of like the class concert for mm -hmm. fifth graders. Mm -hmm. This guy's a drummer and this kid has a problem with his trumpet he can't like a key is stuck or something and like he can't figure it out and the person he was subbing for was a trumpet player who could have very easily said oh it's bop 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 and his response was like sorry bro you're off the gig <laughs> <laughs> oh man um when you i mean so you do you do a good bit of teaching um a little bit yeah, yeah. i don't have a regular teaching thing but i do like coachings or master classes yeah places that i go do you think about um like when you think about like meaningful impactful experiences that you had with a teacher like is it how much of it is the hang and getting to know the person um i think it's really important the relationship to a teacher and the energy that they put off like i remember having master classes that completely changed my playing not just because of the advice that someone gave but the enthusiasm maybe that they had for the music or the love that they expressed for the craft yeah i think that is huge um i try to always think of that like when i'm teaching especially younger kids it's important for them to feel like being here is not a punishment. It's difficult, but it's not, um, you're not here to be berated. Like you're here right. because we all love this thing and we all um, want to do this together and we're like getting better together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Establishing trust like that is super important. Yeah. There's, um, I've, I've been watching these like uh, master classes uh, with the clarinetist um, Leon Rushenoff. Mm -hmm. These are from like, late 70s early 80s i found someone on youtube and you know he taught all the classical players mm -hmm. but he's just this hilarious warm dude and you can see like he's instantly likable he's mm -hmm. instantly like you just you trust him yeah and the way he sort of like takes people through it's you know it's totally moment to moment but you could grab like any little nugget of a thing that he says and just like spend the rest of the day with it yeah it's so good nice yeah when you finished in 2011 at msm like mm -hmm. like were you sort of like just thrown out into the wilderness or did you have sort of an idea of <laughs> it was a wilderness yeah, yeah for sure i found an apartment that i in leopard's garden so i was renting for like 400 dollars a month for a whole place or just a no no no, just a room okay yeah um we haven't and then i worked as a like a waitress for like six months and Where? then um in park slope Where? bogota <laughs> bistro <laughs> okay on fifth avenue uh-huh yeah um so i was doing that for just a little while and then i started gigging a lot more yeah um, and things picked up pretty fast and then i joined the quartet in yeah i joined Mivos in 2012 you replaced isabel yeah okay yeah and so you knew those uh, victor and olivia from msm or from we weren't there at the same time but i just knew them from the scene i mean it's yeah. pretty small that world of contemporary classical yeah, people. yeah um so i just met them through that and josh too i'd known josh, josh a little yeah. bit better yeah he's a monster yeah he's the best he's really good yeah when you were at MSM, like so, you were going to shows and stuff. Sort mm -hmm. of, where where were some of the places that you like to hear music at the time? Um, well, I was a huge fan of Wet Ink, so I was I would go to all of their concerts yeah. for sure. Um, but man, I can't remember Issue. Yeah, I remember going to the old Issue a lot at the Can Factory. Yeah, um, Roulette. I think, yeah, yeah, I guess Roulette was there. The standard. 
Yeah. <laughs> standard. The standard places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you meet <laughs> the, the tank? The tank was still there at that Street. point. Yeah. I think it's still there, actually. Is it? I ran into some people the other day, like non musician people that I know, mm-hmm. and they were like, oh, we're going to a show. And mm-hmm. I was like, I said, where? They said the tank. I was like, really? On 42nd Street? That's shocking. Next yeah. to Privatized Gentleman's Club? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Oh, yeah, the tank. I had some important shows there early on when I first moved to New York. Yeah, I had a really big show there once. What was it? It was like my first ever solo show was there. Really? Yeah, in like 2012 or something. Who put that on? I can't remember. <laughs> what, do you remember what you played? Um, nope. Did anyone show up? I think I played Zanakis. Yeah, people showed up. I think I played a piece by my friend Baljinder Sekone for cello and four percussionists. Uh-huh. Um, That's I can't a good concert. Zanakis? Yeah. That shit is amazing. Yeah. That's very intense. I, I got into Zanakis when I was like 20, mm-hmm. and I'm still... Like, just constantly going back to it. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. I appreciate that as, like, a holistic piece of art, too. Like, his scores are so beautiful. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate that. Do you have this book? I was just, like, revisiting the day from, um, like, 2000, like, 10 years ago or so, they did this exhibition at the Drawing Center mm-hmm. of his scores, and they, oh, cool. this book came out along the same time. Oh, no, I don't have it. Shows, like, his sketchbooks. Oh, nice. It's pretty amazing. Cool. Uh, so, did you, and did you, were you meeting the people from Wedding? Like, um... <laughs> yeah, I think I was like just fangirling really? around. Yeah, well, I mean, I knew Josh, so yeah, that was fine. But yeah, just hang out and just I appreciated their music and their aesthetic so much. Um, I mean, I feel like anyone in this sort of situation, it's always good to meet more people that are excited about the music but can also play. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you like parse that out as somebody that's presenting something. Uh yeah I don't I think that's where like it's really important to have to to maintain like a good social component yeah definitely and like meet people go out, you know yeah. I'm bad I'm really bad yeah I'm not great at it anymore I find it I find the hang challenging yeah. you know just part of our job and I love to go out and see music but when it becomes that part of the night where it's like the hang I find that really I don't know it's just challenging with the part of like so what are you working on that yeah shit? yeah I can't really deal with that <laughs> it's hard yeah it's really hard yeah i want my interactions to be genuine if i'm interested in what someone's doing i will ask them and like have that conversation yeah. but yeah that like, this is okay right yeah 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 but i mean so like i heard there's this bass player who's new ish to town um mm-hmm. henry fraser he's been mm-hmm. here for like a few years mm-hmm. but i keep hearing like oh this guy's really great and he's playing with people i know so i tried something new you know what i did mm-hmm. i sent him an email and said hey you know i heard you're really great um, do you want to get together and have a beer? And we just went out to a bar nice. and talked about music and shit for like an hour and a half. Before. That's great. Yeah. And, and it's like, we haven't played yet, but I was like, hey man, we should play. Yeah. I, so it's like a new approach that I'm taking, which That's is great. to treat people like people. That's a very good approach. It's weird, right? Yeah. And I feel like the personal element of performing with someone is really, really important. Especially yeah. like the older I get, the more important it is to me if to have a good... Um, like trusting personal relationship where you feel like you understand someone, like you see them, you can have really open communication. Like that's so important. Um, yeah, we just, um, I played with Josh actually, Josh and Eric. Josh Mighty and Eric Wubbles. Yeah, we premiered a new trio of Eric's last week, um, which was just such an amazing experience because they're two 
just great friends and I feel like we have such a great musical connection and those experiences for me are just transcendent when you the music is good like I really believed in the music I really believed in them like we felt like we really had uh-huh. just this great space between us you know sure I've only ever had very brief interactions um, with Josh Eric I know enough from a conversation we had that he just seems like a really warm supportive yeah uh like clear-minded person to me yeah definitely yeah I have a trio that we don't play as often as I'd like, but I have absolute confidence that the other two people in the group uh, trust and respect me. And it yeah. makes the act of playing music so much like more comfortable, but also mm-hmm. inspiring to try things out that are yeah. out there. Exactly. And I, I feel more and more that music can't exist without that trust. Music is about communication. You know, yeah. If you can't communicate with someone or you don't feel you don't feel that openness or that trust from them, you can't music can't exist in that space right so you finish school you you work at the Colombian bistro (laughs) (laughs) and you meet and and it was around that time that you joined Mivos yeah it was I guess I joined in 2000 spring of 2012 and was it like had had you been fostering that that friendship thing or you was like a hired gun kind of thing um well I knew them and I went to the concert because I really respected them and yeah. really was into the repertoire and stuff that they were doing. Um, and I guess they, their cello stuff kind of suddenly, suddenly, um, and they needed someone for over the summer. So I was actually supposed to be teaching that summer and they were like, could you leave in two weeks or whatever? For a tour. <laughs> yeah. For a tour in Europe. Um, so I like found someone to cover my teaching. We did all this stuff and we like rebooked the flights and stuff. And I just left and like had to learn Lachenmann quartet and play it for Lachenmann the next week. Are you kidding insane. me? It was the most ridiculous you baptism by fire. You were completely, you had never even looked at the score before. Well, we rehearsed like twice before we left. No, like I, but that. I mean yeah. like the piece was... Oh yeah, on another planet. Yeah, for you. Uh, completely, and also probably the hardest piece I've ever played. Still, one of the to hardest pieces. Yeah. How how was the gig? Terrifying, I guess. I don't know. It was so um, so much stimulation. I don't know if I had time to feel that worried about it because it was we left and we had this workshop with Lachenmann and the Arditi Quartet on this piece, oh. which is basically like one of Lachenmann's masterworks. Oh. It is so dense. It's like twenty five minute shredding. Wait, 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 so wait, the first time you play the piece is in front of Lachman and the Arditi Quartet? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that sounds like something out of a nightmare to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, at the time, it didn't, it was a little bit stressful, but I was so excited because this was also such a great opportunity for me. Like, I felt like I was finally, had found a, a chance to perform this crazy music, you know? Yeah. And to work on this incredible piece. Like, it was definitely, it's definitely one the of the deep most, end of the pool, though. Yeah, yeah. It was the ocean. <laughs> and what do you recall what uh, Arditi's response and what Lachman's response was? Yeah, they were great. They were super supportive. We worked with them for a few days. Um, they were great to work with. Do they know that you were thrown into the deep end like that? Um, I don't You were trying to be like, oh, I've been with this group forever. We are gonna, we're going to fucking kill this. I don't, I don't know if we even mentioned it. Huh. Yeah. It's like, I'm just going to show up and do the best that I can. And it was good. I mean, I worked really hard and I think it was cool. Yeah. You know, that is a, that's something, you know, don't, like, I think a lot of people, I definitely have this, this tendency to like apologize in advance. Yeah. You don't do anyone any favors by doing that. I know. In any part of your life. Right. That's a hard um, habit to unlearn too. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I cooked some dinner for people the other night and like mm-hmm. as I'm putting it on the table, I'm like, yeah, the thing's a little overcooked and yeah. you know, this is a little undersalted. You should have some salt on it. And yeah. it's just like, when, why? Yeah. Why? Yeah, it's unnecessary. I think in performance too, like you, people want you to succeed. They don't, 
they they overlook a lot of things, you know. Mm-hmm. They want to hear the thing as it is. So you don't need to qualify with like, oh, this part's gonna be really bad, or like, oh yeah, when I messed up, did you notice? Like, you don't you don't need to do that stuff. Oh, it's yeah. I th- I think that was smart to approach it like that to not yeah. you know. I, if I, I'm imagining myself in that situation and mm-hmm. I would be like, yeah, you know, I, yeah. you know I'm, I'm trying, you know, just <laughs> yeah. bear with me. Yeah. I think I didn't. I was just like, I'm just going to show up and I'm just going to play what I have yeah. to play. So you're you're not in the group anymore, right? No. Yeah. So how long that was from what, 2011 until? Until last year. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like six years. And that was like full on, like, like a pretty mm-hmm. intense schedule, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did other stuff during that sure. time, but it was, yeah, pretty. Did you have much say in, um. What repertoire you guys were going to be doing? Yeah, we were total democracy in that way. That's um, a we, luxury. Yeah, we decided always together. Yeah. Yeah, it is a luxury. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you involved much in the like behind the scenes administrative shit? Yeah, we shared that stuff too. Um, so I was writing grants and doing lots of emails and all that stuff. So you've gotten better at it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you... All right, this is totally like a self-serving question. Mm-hmm. Um I've completely given up on the grant thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, g- I gave up on it a long time ago. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll try out that one. Mm-hmm. And do you like start from scratch with everyone or do you kind of start with like a... No, usually, um, especially with a group, you have like at least some things that are always going to be the same that you can build out on. Or even with certain projects, if you apply multiple times for a certain project, right. there's things that you can build up on. But you have like your bio and your CV and your mission statement or whatever that can always be the same. Um, your budget will be what it is. Sure. You know? um, so once you've done like one, you're kind of set to do some other ones. It's not sure. like you have to do spend that much time every time you do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the way it should be. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, it's that, not that bad. That scene is so rough. <laughs> it is so rough. Um, so, d- uh, prior to to being with that group for seven years, mm-hmm. had you traveled the world much? Um, a little bit. Yeah, I'd done a little bit of stuff in Europe um, before that, but definitely not compared to the kind of stuff that we did. We traveled a lot. Yeah. as a quartet. Did you you like that aspect of it? Oh, I love it. Really? Yeah, I love it so much. It's, yeah, one of my favorite things about the job, actually. Yeah. Every part of it. Lobby call. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't bother me. Showing up to the airport two hours before the flight. Yeah, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Because I just, I don't know, going to new places makes me feel so um, just grateful to be alive, you know? Like, And I'm that person, like, if I have one day in a city and I know we only have one day, I will wake up at 5 a.m. to, like, go to that temple in Beijing or whatever to see just, like, see one thing. And you do it in advance. You figure out, like, Mm -hmm. I got to see this. I got to see that. Yeah. Totally. I'm that person. (laughs) That's a good person to be on tour with. (laughs) Yeah. Make the plan. Find the things. I'm the opposite. (laughs) I find the one place to eat and then I find the the quiet place to read. Yeah. Eating is very important on tour, though. It's kind of... If you're not careful, you're just going to eat garbage and feel like crap. True. It's also such a great way to experience a place and to experience people. Yeah. Even if you have time for nothing else, you will have time for one good meal, you know? Yeah. And a good meal can mean a number of things. It doesn't mean necessarily right. like, you know, a Michelin star restaurant oh, no. or anything like that. No. Just yeah. tasty food. So what, what's the, what, what's some, what's like, what, like one of the most far out places you've been? Far out places. Um, we did a concert in Malaysia, which was pretty distant. <sighs> so good. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Went to China a bunch. Um, we <laughs> played in a 
a quote small town in China, which was still like a billion people. <laughs> but the whole town was brand new. Like we were the first concert in this concert hall. Um, so it was still under construction and they like painted our name in giant letters what? on the hall. We were the first per- people in this hotel, which was the lobby was like six stories high with a chandelier the size of like a semi truck. It was what? huge. And there was like maybe two or three other people in the hotel. Is it, are these like, are these, these like these ghost buildings that I've heard about? Yes. Ghost cities? Is yes. that what it was? Well, there was people starting to move there, but they were building all of these like high rises and stuff, and half of them had already fallen down because they were building stuff so fast. It was like one of the weirdest places that's I've ever been in my surreal. life. Yeah. See, that's the kind of travel I want to do. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I you was just meet the weirdest people there too. Really? Yeah. We so because our... they're like acting, trying to act like people when or... yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. when <laughs> <laughs> they're um, trying to show you how like how much great stuff they have you know Uh like this guy that was one of the presenters took us out to dinner after in the city um and he was just like slamming beers he like kept trying to have a chugging contest with the two guys in our group and they're like we don't want to we don't want to chug beer um and then somehow he like at some point took out this scrapbook it was a photo album of his career as a teenager as a dancer like he wanted to show us his yeah where did this even come from you've been carrying this around all day to show us your like teenage dance photos this guy uh, he was maybe 40. What a weird life yeah. he must lead. Yeah, super weird. And just like boasting the whole time. And then, yeah, then it devolved into a talk about the glory of Mao and communism. And it was very out experience. See, that's what it, yeah. I was I was actually researching the other night. Um, it's way easier than I thought uh, to travel to Pyongyang, North Korea. Uh, really? I mean, it's it's arduous. Like, But yeah. as far as like, there's a travel agency that specializes in getting people into Pyongyang. Really? For, and uh, it only costs like two grand. I mean, it's a it's a trip. Like, it'll mm-hmm. take you like four or five days to get in, and yeah. like you know, you'll ride a bus with chickens and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're there, like, you know, if, if you go left when you're supposed to go right, you know, they'll imprison you and beat you. But right. it's easy to get. There. <laughs> <laughs> would you go? I would love to go. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think I would feel pretty bad like contributing to that government in any way whatsoever. Right. You know, like there shouldn't Couldn't be a tourism him. industry there because right. they're like gigantic human rights abusers. Right. Uh, but I just like the fucking like yeah, surreality of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't know if there's anywhere I just wouldn't go. I would kind of like to see every place. Like I would even like to see Antarctica. Call up uh, Henry Kaiser. I think he doesn't <laughs> yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Like, are there places like a lot of people aren't going into Israel? Yeah. Um, I don't have much interest in it. And so w- was uh, so you guys were working primarily with like living composers, right? Yeah, yeah, almost exclusively living composers. Yeah, and almost exclusively like a, a younger generation of composers. So not like not like the eighty year olds, which right. already have tons of concerts. Like right, yeah, that kind of stuff. Did supporting you, but, commissions and stuff. But did you work with some of the eighty year olds? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How was that? Um, sometimes good and sometimes terrible. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, like, did you, how can I say this? Like the, the, the skill of working with a living, like having the composer present as you learn the piece, was that sort mm-hmm. of like a new skill set to learn? Definitely. And there's like a few set personality types that you learn to navigate yeah. as well. So that's always a funny dance to have to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think with working with composers, all you have to do is be open and friendly and don't, um, 
I think you have to kind of check your ego at the door, you know, don't sure. let yourself be steamrolled. But I think a lot of people struggle to check their egos a lot of times. Right. Um, so I think that's my main way that I like to approach collaborations. It's just like, it's not about me. We're making music. <sighs> yeah. Let's just be respectful to each other. I mean, I have to imagine with, you know, living younger composers, you probably see a, a fair amount of non-standard notation. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Um, that can be challenging, especially because, especially with much younger people, like in their early 20s or something, people have this um, desire to reinvent notation that doesn't need to be reinvented. Sure. Um, which can be frustrating, but... But do you feel in those moments, like, is it your place to say, hey, if you want a glissando, just like put a glissando? Yeah, I think it's good advice because if they want someone else to play their music or if they want their music to be accessible to performers, it behooves a composer to put it in a way that is um, readable, that yeah. is legible and is um, going to like first and foremost get them the sound that they want rather than the concept that they want. Yeah, it's I sort think. of like a strange maneuver of like the composer needs to extricate themselves in just the right way so that the piece yeah. can be approachable. Yeah, and that's not to say that notation should be simple. Right. You know, sometimes like someone like Andrew Greenwald has very densely complex notation i don't know if you know his music yeah. uh, um, somewhat yeah but i think like the way that he notates is crucial to the way that he wants the music to sound you know it looks very intimidating but i can't imagine another way for him to notate what he right wants, you know do you feel like um i was you know I've, I've i've asked different people about this but like like when you're putting this the page together for the interpreter like you kind of want them to be on their toes and like work you know working you want to keep them interested in, in working mm -hmm. so like i mean we're working we're always working <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you need to worry about whether we're working make this a little bit harder than it needs yeah. to be i don't think that should be where the difficulty is right. i think that the where the main work should be is in making the musical expression the truest form of or the most accurate to what the composer intends yeah. that it can be. It doesn't need to be like the relationship between me and this piece of paper. That shouldn't be where the challenge is, I don't think. Right. I mean, I guess there's some people that have that philosophy. Like Fernie Howe, for example, right. has said <laughs> that he writes music that is super difficult because he feels like it weeds out people that are not committed to making the music happen, which I suppose is true. Sure. But... I think that first and foremost, the the clear clarity of expression should be yeah. the most important thing. But is there like does that in addition to weeding out like the the amateurs or the people who aren't really committed? Does it for the people that do stick around? Does it elevate the performance? You think? In a way, it does because when something is that dense, you almost have to memorize it before you get to a place where you can even perform it at all. Right. Um, so I guess there is. There is elevation that happens in performing really difficult music. I mean, I love to perform really challenging, dense music. And part of that, part of the reason for that is that it does kind of elevate me, puts uh -huh. you on a different plane because you're just so embedded in the process. You know, you have this intensity that you need to approach every moment of that music with. Like you, you can't check out, you know? Yeah. So I think there's definitely something valuable in that. Yeah. You hear these stories about people like, yeah, I spent uh, you know like six weeks learning that measure, mm -hmm. eight hours a day. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that's music is written for people that can do that. Yeah, that's like a pretty luxurious um, 
yeah, I know. Like, measure or bar or like yeah. system of music. Ske- yeah, schedule that lets you learn one one bar for six weeks. <laughs> oh, that sounds fucking boring. Sorry. <laughs> so since leaving the group, like you, you've stayed incredibly active. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of different types of stuff and kind of getting into um, different kinds of projects. I've been improvising a lot more and writing a little bit myself. Um, improvising with, with groups? Um, yeah, sometimes with groups and sometimes by myself. I just recorded like a improv solo album thing, which I'm trying to kind of not, piece together right now. Not the thing you just put out? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this. This is, this is interesting. Where did you record it? Um, in uh, this studio in Portugal. Which was nice. Just um, some friends have this really beautiful space that's new in yeah. Porto. So we just set up a bunch of mics and I just played for a, a few hours. Just um, off the cuff improvisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I like the uh, the challenge of like finding structure in something that is completely unplanned. Yeah. So I was kind of trying to explore that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Pure acoustic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Did um, and and you're gonna you're you're looking to to release it. Yeah. Yeah. At some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you've made two records already of your own. Yeah. And were how much of those were like newly commissioned pieces for the record? All of them. 100%. Yeah. You got George Lewis to do one, right? Mm-hmm. How yeah. was that? Oh, amazing. Yeah. George is so great to work with. Yeah. He's so creative. He's one of the most creative people I've met. He's also like the smartest dude alive. He is also the smartest dude alive. Yeah. The couple of interactions I've had with him, I've been like super intimidated. Yeah. Or or, or just self-conscious that like I'm going to say something, you know, like <laughs> dumb or something. <laughs> the thing is, George is never like, he's he's not concerned about other people. He just has a lot to share. You know, he knows a lot and he has a lot to share. Yeah. Have you read his book, uh, A Power Stronger Than oh, yeah. Himself? Yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He's such a one of those people that's really inspiring to be around too because you can just tell there's so many different connections going on all the time, you know, and he's totally open to those connections happening. Yeah. He's not burdened by um, feeling like he has to do one thing or another thing in music. I feel like he lets himself go between a lot of different things. I mean, you know, it's been said by many people I know, myself included, it's like, dude, you're like the best tr- trombone player around. Like, mm-hmm. play the trombone. And I, I just don't think he really... Uh, no, he just does what he, he wants to do. Yeah. Although one of the best concerts I ever saw was his trio with Roscoe Mitchell and Muhal Abrams. Which is not surprising at all. It was, my I think my entire face melted off. It was ridiculous. That was at the New York City Opera? It was at Bohemian Hall. Where's that? Um, it's that hall on the Upper East Side. Yeah. Um, like um, SEM Ensemble does concerts there. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so it was like the second half of an SEM Ensemble concert. They did trio. It's like I could do this forever, <laughs> just keep this going forever and ever. Just that listening experience. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, have you talked with George about improvisation much? No, actually, not that much. But I feel like a lot of his writing, like the piece that he wrote for me, is very. It feels like an improvisation. Yeah. Because it's um pretty stream of consciousness, and there's a lot of just exploration of textures and development. The way that it develops is very um. Spur of the moment. How does that work? So you, you go to George and you say, hey, I'd love for you to write me a piece. Mm-hmm. And you agree to it? Or do you give him some indication of what you're looking for? Or I just ask if he would write a piece. And he's like, yeah, let's do. Let's get together and work on some material. So we got together and worked on a bunch of diff- different textures, which ended up being in the piece. I'm developing different things that I could do on my instrument that um, were interesting to him and to me. And then just kind of put it together. And he's like, here you go. <laughs> yeah. 
And then uh, also on the record, there's a duo piece with Eric Wobbles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was similar. Eric is also a big workshop person. So we worked, we got together a lot before the piece was finished and um, tried out different material and figured out what was working and just played together. And a lot of um, the pieces that I commissioned um, developed out of like improvising with composers too. Like not Eric's piece, we didn't improvise that much, but um, some of the other stuff, like on my first record too. Yeah. Um, which is just a good way to get... I think if you don't play an instrument, it's hard to know the real depth of capabilities or what a person is like as a player. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a good way to like get familiar with that. But also, I, I think it's cool. I think it's important. And I think it's really exciting to sort of like strategize different um, like working methods. Yeah. You know, yes, you could say to a composer, write me a piece. Here's a check. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go learn the piece. Yeah. Um, but even just like the aspect of like, Let's play together a lot mm-hmm. and then come up with some materials and then you'll compose it. Yeah. Like that's a really cool way to work. Yeah. I think that is so much more interesting than just getting a piece of paper at the end of the day, you know, because it, I mean, as I said before, like music is about people. It's about communication. It's not, I, I don't know. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. I, I, well, I, I guess it can. I guess mm-hmm. somebody can just hand you a piece, but that's not so interesting to me. You know, I like the process of like communication, like the the back and forth that happens when people are writing piece for a specific person, you know, because a lot of music has been written. There's a lot of things that have been written already, um, but it's really interesting to explore the individual in the context of yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to do a record and I just of uh of an improv session with a producer on it yeah the producer sort of like you know creating the shots yeah like specific people who i feel like have like really cool like aesthetic approaches it's funny so the one of the other pieces on that second record um is a piece i did with jank ergen it's a cello and electronics piece um and that was just kind of like a structured improv between us we had like a couple different cells of activity and then we did exactly that we listened back to the stuff we like and we like together like co-produced a a way to like put together takes that made an interesting piece so that was the editing process or was that going back in and retracking no editing process yeah yeah so we just like went over the material we had made and like made these choices and that's on the new record yeah and i feel like that's one of my favorite pieces actually of course it is and of course it's gonna breathe in a way that like you didn't know it was going to yeah exactly and so um Oh, man, this is getting me like a. I want to go. There's a, I, there's nothing more that I love than being in the recording studio. Really. And being in the mixing editing process. Mm. Like it's that's to me. Yeah. I sometimes love it and I sometimes hate it. What do you it, hate about it? I find it very stressful because and it's I find it super tiring because you're performing in a way you're performing, but there's no performance energy like. Mm-hmm. in a performance you're getting so much energy back from people that are listening and from that like energy that you're putting out into an audience there's an urgency to it exactly yeah so in a recording studio you're like basically performing over and over but you're getting no energy back i find that super draining it is draining and it's a very silent environment yeah you get done playing and those rooms yeah. are <laughs> yeah. engineered to be as quiet as possible yeah. and it's you know yeah, his lights are maybe too bright. And yeah. Headphone mix is loud. Like, yeah, it's it, it's a drag. Yeah. It is a drag, but it's the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you you have to learn. I, I I had, you know, 
I, I'm aware of the fact that like I had to learn how to play in a recording studio. Yeah, it's a very different type of playing too. Yeah, but you know, like in 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 an improvisational setting, putting everyone into their own ISO booth if possible, mm-hmm. which is completely like <laughs> alien to the concept of group improvisation. Yeah. But like I've made some records now that I'm like that music is way better than it would have been if we were all in the same room. Like, interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I've never done that actually. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Do you have a particular studio that you like to work at? Um, I do a lot at Octavin. That's the place, huh? Yeah, it's great because the engineer there is wonderful. Ryan. Yeah, the person Ryan Straber. I've never been up there, but every like killing like contemporary classical musician goes to Ryan. Yeah, because Ryan's ears are insane. He's a great musician himself. Yeah. So he really hears a lot, and he um, has like total control over the situation. You're not stuck in that situation where you're like oh my god maybe i should do this bar 10 more times he's like no it's cool i know what we have and he's, he's always does he sit like with the score at the yeah see that is a lost art yeah that's a lost art it really is that's what silas brown does oh man yeah but that's like if you were doing pop sessions back in the day they would have the arrangement at the mixing board yeah yeah not other places yeah so that's why i go there a lot mm-hmm. and are you so that record just came out recently like a year or a half it was year? a year a year and a half ago I guess. yeah did you yeah. do shows around it mm-hmm. a little bit yeah i did some stuff i did one release here and then i did some touring in seven europe yeah after that yeah do you like good. touring solo it's kind of a trip right it is kind of a trip i like? feel like I, I do love it it takes like one or two shows to get really comfortable but then after that it feels so great yeah, yeah i just love that freedom and then uh i don't know it feels very like empowering to have like control over the flow the energy flow of a evening yeah so i like doing that yeah yeah and do you have a lot of stuff coming up like what, what's what's on the horizon um i don't have too much solo stuff coming up um i have a show at bronx college in march mm-hmm. um and then i have just I'm playing with a bunch of ensembles around new york yeah so you, you kind of you've, you've worked with all of them or a lot of them mm-hmm. ice yeah mivos mm-hmm. wedding mm-hmm. yeah yeah talk um i know them i don't i haven't played I, I, I they, don't have, have. they don't have a cello usually <laughs> <laughs> but they should call you if they do yeah <laughs> okay but this is i'm glad you came over yeah. it's been super fun yeah thanks for having me and thanks for having my dog on your house oh, all the time she's, <laughs> she's coming with me <laughs> all right that was mariel roberts I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Uh, the music that you're listening to right now from her newest record, Cartography. Utterly spectacular. I can't recommend it enough. Go to MarielRoberts.com. Check in. She's doing great stuff, and uh, you're going to be hearing about her for, uh, for a long time. Mariel Roberts. Master of the cello go to the 5049 website become a Patreon donor uh, check out some past episodes and uh, enjoy we'll be back next week until then I hope you guys are all doing well alright bye